3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 182. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Guess what I did yesterday? Left me job. <laughs> Not as in that kind of radical terms of just, all right, that's it, I'm out of here. Yes, a lot of years, I've gone. But, being there, I've actually been with the waterboard, ooh, oodles of that, 25 years, something like that. But that particular department, probably about, I don't know, 15 years, and now I'm going on to a new department. oh well, that's scary, but I haven't got that kind of hour's drive. So, a little bit of news about myself. I left that part, and, and the new job that I'll be going to is only... God, eight minutes away. Do you know what I mean? But actually, that's a bit of a, not a, a downside as well, because it's certainly not for fuel, but it is for listening to stuff. Do you know what I mean? On my little kind of iPhone there. So, we'll just have to wait and see. I might be a very harassed and stressed guy because it's, it's not like the old job <laughs> after work and this fucking thing. Anyway, today's show, we have a little short story by. Melissa Yuan Inns Science News, JJ Campanella This month's Science News Main Fiction comes from Will McIntosh One of my favourite writers out there at the moment And finally we have a little promo by Revolution SF So do look out for that End of the month And you know what end of the month is? It's art Now, (laughs) just honestly Stop what you're doing Check your iPhone, check your Android phones Check the website, whatever you do Check out this art Brian Thomas Woods. Brian's actually looks after now all the art side of Starship Sofa. So anything that's kind of to do with the art and the covers and anything like that, I just ship it all over to Brian. And Brian's been away there, busy working as a bee. And I just actually forgot, well, not, not saying forgot that Brian does art, but i certainly forgot how good he is. And, you know, I, knew, I give Brian this story ages ago. I said, Brian, that's, I love this story. Will you do some art for it? And Brian's been so busy, kind of sorting out all the artwork for, you know, Starship Sova, Came up with this, and he actually bless him, it was down to the wire. Do you know what I mean? He, he sent it the other day or yesterday, and he had f- he had four hours sleep before he had to go back to work. But have a look at this art. Like I say, Brian's been so busy, kind of you know, working for the kind of behind the scenes in Starship Sova, I haven't appreciated just how good. Look at this and. It's when you actually look at the art and you kind of, the, you know, the, kind of the, the face of this clown, the emotion that, that Brian's captured in there is just awesome. Do you know what I mean? It's just staggering. Please have a look at it, Brian. Like see say, this, I really liked your Michael Flynn story. Do you know what I mean? The kind of cover art you did for that. I liked all your art. But then this, this one's come along now and it's just rocketed up the top of my list there. This is your best ever yet. So thank you so much for that. Please, like I say, stop what you're doing. Check out Brian Thomas Woods' art. Fantastic. Little short story coming up then by Melissa Yuan Inns. Melissa is a writer, physician and she says free spirit living with her family outside Montreal, Canada. She's had work in Interzone. She's had stories in the anthology The Dragon and the Star. She's got a new bit of fiction coming in, the anthology Beware the Night. Being in Weird Tales, Nature, Open Space. This is one right that you kinda of really need to kinda of keep an eye out for and you know look where she's going because some fantastic works coming from Melissa. The story is narrated by Jonathan Danz. As you know, Jonathan did the Nebula nominated Christopher Caston Smith story. And as and if he didn't know, he's going to get a whole load more. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
4: Read by Melissa Yuan Innes. From the operating table, Rosa Clark watched the anesthetist insert an intravenous line into her right hand. For a fifteen-year-old, she must have had difficult veins, because he had to poke her twice before the burgundy blood flashed back up the catheter. She didn't flinch. Usually, I don't enter the OR until the residents have prepped and draped the patient, but this one was special. She was the youngest spontaneous donor we'd ever had, but arguably one of the smartest. I crossed to her side. Are you sure? She nodded but whispered. My grandmother would kill me. She looked about as pale and thin as the hospital sheet she was lying on. Her heart pulsed at 99. Goose pimples rose on her arms. A stray lock of her long, wavy, cinnamon-colored hair was the brightest thing in the OR until a nurse tucked it behind a blue hair net. When she first walked into my clinic, all I saw was the hair. Recessive gene jackpot. I scanned her face. Another check mark for mild to moderate freckles. Even with the current rage for redheads, the Dalmatian look wasn't in. But she'd made me see her as an individual. First of all, she pointed out the high miscarriage rate. Even though we did our best at immunohistogenic matching, our success rate was worse than any other transplant surgery. I'd started to believe my own hype. The applause of my colleagues at conferences was addictive enough without the gifts, donations, and documentaries of Ressa Moms. Just that morning I downloaded a mini-movie where the Ressa held a doptone to her very pregnant belly, cut to a PG-13 shot of the labor, and ended with her holding newborn baby girl. Thank you, Dr. Fletcher, for helping our dream come true. But Rosa had said... Isn't it true that over half the fetuses die, even with you doing surgery? And you're supposed to be the best, aren't you? Then she refused to answer questions about her parents. I left that blank on purpose. You can ask everything about me, but not my parents. I'd objected to this question myself. We don't know how much of intelligence is genetic, and careers don't equal intelligence. My dad was a bus driver, and my mom worked in a fish factory. The board psychiatrist had intoned, IQ tests aren't practical, so for most spawn donors, parental occupations are the best we'll get. Birth mothers want smart babies. End of story. So this strange, strong, red-haired girl was a woman after my own heart. At least she was until she refused to answer my questions about her partner. Rosa, it would help your embryo to answer these questions. The ones who don't get placed? Well, you'd have to go back to the old-fashioned choices of abortion, adoption, or raising the baby yourself. Her green eyes revealed nothing. Tell me anything. Like, does he have red hair? Rosa half snorted. (laughs) No. Too bad. I wrote non-red hair. Anything else? She didn't move. Interests. Height. Age. Serial number. Anything. Anything to sell my baby? She snapped. I studied her for a minute. Anything to play the game so your baby has a better chance at life. Ha. She blinked away a tear. What happened to just wanting a baby? I shook my head and didn't answer. Her fists clenched. I wanted to have a good home. That's why I... She cut herself off and stared at me. I want to screen the birth parents back. I want to see them before they get... implanted. Done. Highly unusual, but no one would have to know. Now, about him... She thought a little... He plays the trombone, he's good at science, wants to be a physicist, and he has a great French accent. A smile flickered. He likes children. In the silence, I said softly, that's fine, Rosa, thank you. Oh, yes, all right. She signed the consent form so hard that her pen ripped the page. So now, with Rosa before me, I asked her one more time, are you sure you want to donate your embryo? she turned her head away. Just do it. The resident stopped talking. I felt the anesthetist and nurse's eyes on me. Finally, I said, all right. Once she was under and prepped and draped, I made a fan and steel incision just above the pubic hair to open the abdominal layers down through the peritoneum. A resident retracted the bowels. I gently, gently incised the uterus with robotic scalpel. Under the microscope's guidance, I removed an embryo the size of my pinky nail as well as its placenta. The nurses sighed with relief when I slipped it into a nutri bottle. The anesthetist woke up Rosa and wheeled her to recovery, and after a quick room clean, the Ressimam rolled in praying. Her husband stroked her hand. Don't worry, Lorna. We'll have our little redhead yet, God willing. The embryo would have one recessive red-haired gene from its mother, Artificial down-regulation of the melanocortin-1 receptor could guarantee red hair, but it was still unpopular, especially with the religious candidates. Two hours later, I ducked into step-down recovery to tell Rosa all had gone well. Someone can take you home. She swung her legs over the side and grabbed the bed for balance. I'll call a cab. Rosa, you're still... I'm fine. She started to stand, then froze. I followed her gaze to a young man in the hallway. Booker! He caught her before she fell. Baby. Booker. He stroked her hair, and she wrapped her arms around him tightly. Booker, you came. They looked so young, so right together. My throat ached. His dark cocoa fingers moved tenderly against her red, red hair. A cry strangled in my throat. Doctor! Rosa held herself just out of his arms. Doctor, Booker is not the father. He opened his mouth, but she sliced it off with a look. I'd listed the father's race as unknown when the rest of parents signed. Now I had possible new information that one of my patients wanted suppressed, and the other, more powerful patient, would want known. There was no test for race. The Jansen Foundation, founded by white supremacists, put some money into it, but there were more molecular genetic similarities between races than differences, and the test was neither very sensitive nor specific. In the end, I'd probably have to do a second spontaneous donation, chances of finding another compatible donor were very small. The chances of a couple wanting a half-white, half-black baby twice removed were even smaller. The chances of the embryo surviving another transplant were almost nil. I closed my eyes and wept.
3: There you go. Copyright is, Melissa, do pop over there and say hello to Melissa, like I say, a very exciting writer who I'm just getting to know, brilliant stuff. Next up,
1: oh,
5: good old salt work there, <laughs> J.J. Campanella, Jim, Science News Squire. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this March 2011 Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening of wondrous science gossip, Jim Campanella. Let's get on with this. First, a correction and apology to all you material scientists out there. I really thought that transparent aluminum was a thing only believed in by very confused Trekkies. I was wrong. As was pointed out to me and everyone else by GAM-655 on the Starship Sofa Forum, there is transparent aluminum. It was invented by the military to replace bulletproof glass, which is certainly not all that bulletproof. Transparent aluminum is apparently a clear ceramic material that can stop a round from an anti aircraft gun. It's about half as heavy and thick as bullet resistant glass and apparently much, much tougher. Right now, just like the superglass that we talked about last month, this aluminum is not in great use simply because it's so expensive and it costs about fifteen dollars per square inch to produce. But it's out there. Thanks again to YAM six fifty five. I'm still amazed that this stuff exists at all. Well, here is a strange story that was reported at the February 23rd annual meeting of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Yes, the CSI folks. Now, I have seen lots of bad crime movies and read equally as many crime potboilers. And inevitably, in the worst of these, a la Harvey Keitel as the cleaner in the American Nikita film, Point of No Return, When somebody wants to get rid of a body completely, they take gallons of sulfuric acid and try to dissolve it. Apparently, court witnesses who have testified against the Sicilian mafia have attested that this method works to dissolve bodies within minutes. Unfortunately, according to forensic researcher Dr. Massimo Grillo of the University of Palermo in Italy, that isn't true. Quote, it is impossible that they completely destroyed a corpse with acid. Unquote, he said. Experiments conducted on partial pig carcasses, a widely accepted stand-in for human bodies, showed that it takes days to melt flesh in sulfuric acid. Adding water to the acid speeds up the process, dissolving muscle and cartilage within 12 hours and turning bone to dust within a couple of days, suggesting that the technique could render a corpse completely unrecognizable. Police did find tanks of acid in a Palermo Mafia hideout known as the Chamber of Death, where crime boss Filippo Marchese purportedly dissolved victims after torturing them in the early 1980s. Informants had described the disposal method, the researchers say, with statements like, and oh, I'm going to break my accent rule because these are mob guys, not scientists. We put the people in acid. In 15 to 20 minutes, they were no more. They became a liquid." Even though when the sulfuric acid was diluted in exact ratios with water, it could degrade the pig bodies much faster. Dr. Grillo says he does not believe that the mafiosi would spend the time discovering such a fact and actually performing research into the best experimental conditions to break down a body in acid. I guess that the research suggests that the members of this little crime clan were not as good at telling time as they were at ritual murders. But apparently there are criminals who are even stupider than that. Uh, Michael Henninger, an Atlanta medical examiner, said, Those mafiosa are still smarter than some of our Georgia criminals. People think they will destroy a body, but they do purely dumb things and actually preserve the body. At least these Italian guys are more experienced. It isn't obvious whether the new research will translate into something usable for future investigations. Again, Henninger said, We constantly see cases that are weird. I'm never going to see this exact case, but when you do see something weird like this, it gets you to thinking about how you would figure it out. Well, months ago, I reported on evidence that suggested that cell phones may cause brain cancer. That report was a bit controversial because of its statistical nature, and the jury is still out on it. However, there is new evidence, and this is much more solid, that cell phones may affect brain metabolism and that some sort of metabolic alteration occurs in the brain when phones are pressed to ears. A brain scanning study was published February 22nd in the Journal of the American Medical Association by bioengineer Dr. Henry Lye of the University of Washington. He has stated on his studies that, quote, this is the first paper that really shows that there are changes in the brain and that talking in a cell phone pressed to your ear is really not safe, unquote. In the study, Dr. Lai's research group measured the brain activity of 47 participants who had pairs of Samsung cell phones strapped to their heads on each side. The phone on the left ear was turned off, while the one on the right received a 50-minute recorded message. The active phone was kept muted so that the subject didn't know which phone was on, and also to prevent stimulation of the brain's hearing center. A few minutes after the call, a PET scanner revealed that the brain regions next to the working phone had higher levels of glucose metabolism. The left side of the brain where the inactive phone was strapped showed no changes. Since active brain cells require glucose, the increase suggests that cell phone radiation is boosting brain activity. The human brain is sensitive to electromagnetic radiation that's emitted from cell phones. Well, that appears very obvious now. The particular brain regions affected would probably change depending on a phone's design and how a person holds it, the study says. On the phones used in the study, the antennas are near the bottom, so the brain areas involved were the orbital frontal region, which sits right behind the eyes, and the temporal pole below it. Glucose metabolism rose in these areas by about 7%, an increase typically seen when the brain regions become active. For example, glucose metabolism in the language areas of the brain rises about 10% when a person is talking. The increase in brain metabolism observed in the experiments may be an underestimate because cell phones emit even more radiation when a person is actually talking, says Lai. Radiation levels also change depending on the telephone type, the distance to the nearest cell phone tower, and the number of people using the phones in the same area. All these variables have prevented scientists from getting good epidemiological data about potential health risks of cell phone usage. Researchers don't know yet whether cell phone radiation is dangerous. Quote, at this point, we do not know what clinical significance this particular finding is, unquote, says the paper. The heightened activity may not have any ill effects, or it may be very dangerous, particularly with years of heavy cell phone use or in the developing brains of children and teens, The paper suggests that if you are worried about chatting on your cell phone, that there are a couple of easy solutions that don't cost anything for those who want to play it safe. For instance, people can just limit their use of the cell phone, use the speakerphone option, or talk with a hands-free device that's connected to the phone with a wire. Considering how addicted younglings seem to be at present to cell phone use, I really worry about future findings in this area, especially those directed at teens and young kids. The next story explains, at least in part, why humans were able to kick Neanderthals to the evolutionary roadside, well, so to speak. It appears that Neanderthals, besides not understanding how to buy decent car insurance, also couldn't run very well for any distance. A new study reports that Stone Age humans, unlike their Neanderthal contemporaries, had heel bones spring-loaded for long runs. Dr. David Raiklin of the University of Arizona and his colleagues published a paper January 26th in the Journal of Human Evolution that addresses the problems that Neanderthals probably had running. According to Rakeland, Neanderthals could power walk because of the backs of their feet, but out and out running was not in the cards for them. In ancient Homo sapiens, as in people today, a short lower heel stretched the Achilles tendon taut. That arrangement increased the tendon's spring-like action during running and reduced energy consumption, enabling extended runs or excursions. The result coincides with an earlier proposal that bodies suited to endurance running evolved in the genus Homo more than two million years ago because they aided hunting and carcass scavenging before spears were in widespread use. That was maybe about 400,000 years ago. Raikland's team also found that Neanderthals, compared to people today, had tall heel bones that put less energy-efficient spring in their steps while running. Neanderthals' tall heels possibly stabilized their ankles, giving them an advantage over Homo sapiens in walking up hills and in jumping, though, the paper hypothesizes. Rakeland says, quote, We can say that energy costs of running differed between Neanderthals and modern humans, but our data don't really speak to the question of what happened to the Neanderthals. Scientists already knew that relative to Stone Age people, Neanderthals weighed more, had shorter legs, and had smaller inner ear canals that would have affected the balance needed to coordinate body movements, all obstacles to endurance running. Rakeland's study just provides more evidence that Neanderthals were not as adept at long distance running as humans. Reasons why modern humans evolved to run farther than Neanderthals are unclear, the paper explains. Running prey to exhaustion may have worked better on hot African savannas where Homo sapiens lived than in the cold European settings inhabited by Neanderthals. But no heel fossils have been unearthed for any other Homo species, making it impossible to determine exactly when running-friendly spring-loaded feet like those of modern humans first evolved. You are going to have to forgive me if this next story sounds kind of vague and not very conclusive, but that's exactly what it is. And unfortunately, that condition may not change very soon. A fellow scientist of mine pointed out the story to me, since I am not an avid birder. It appears that many populations of birds in the northern areas of North America have been found with deformities whose origins are very difficult to explain. In a recent pair of papers in the ornithology journal The Auk, doctors Colleen Handel, Carolyn Van Hemert, and colleagues from the U.S. Geological Survey reported deformed beaks turning up among crows in British Columbia and Washington, and more than 2,100 deformed black-capped chickadees have been found in Alaska since 1998. Additionally, a few deformed red-tailed hawks have been seen as far south as California. Now, all these birds look very strange, and when I first saw a photo of them, not being a bird person, I thought the birds looked like they belonged in some tropical jungle sipping at flowers. In place of their typical snub-nosed bills, deformed chickadees, for example, have thick, arched, crow-like beaks and crescent-shaped bills that remind you of birds that do sip at flowers, like honeycreepers. Those are the deformed birds that look normal if you don't know any better. There are also birds that have bizarrely crossed mandibles. Well, these deformities can be a serious threat to survival. It causes problems for eating and for preening for the affected birds. The mystery is what causes the deformities. The birds have been tested for the most obvious offenders, bacterial and viral pathogens, and researchers have come up absolutely negative. They've ruled out also some sort of genetic problem because the birds that are being affected are older and are not born with the defects. A bird's beak consists of bone overlaid by a horny structure. That horny material is keratin, the same protein that makes up hair and feathers and fingernails and claws. Like nails, that horny structure constantly grows and wears away. The deformities are a result of that growth suddenly accelerating, in some cases to nearly twice as fast as anybody has ever measured before. The underlying bones show no evidence of abnormality. Scientists have hypothesized that it's some sort of environmental contaminant that's causing the disorder, which they are now calling avian keratin disorder. The only problem with the environmental contaminant hypothesis is that some of these birds do not travel very far, and yet birds separated by long distances of hundreds of miles have shown the deformities. Worse, the cases are spread across such a wide area, including some fairly unspoiled places, that it's really hard to identify a likely contaminant. The papers state that across coastal and interior Alaska, an average of 6.5% of black-capped chickadees now show these deformities. Across a smaller range of six sites, which spans about 550 miles, an average of 16.7% of northwestern crows were affected. These percentages are, like, massively high. Other deformity spikes that have been observed in the past including cormorants that were affected by organochlorines and selenium in the Great Lakes during the 1970s and 80s, even those topped out at about 3.5%. So what's going on here? Nobody knows. This is a serious mystery. The U.S. Geological Survey has begun a collaboration with Project Feed Watch, in the hopes of helping to pinpoint the geographic limits of the disorder. They encourage anyone who sees a deformed bird anywhere to report it to the USGS website, www.bit.ly slash deformedbirds. I'll repeat that, www.bit.ly slash deformedbirds. So if you see a deformed bird, drop a dime, like they used to say when phone calls actually cost it a dime, and you may be able to help solve this conundrum. The last two stories of the night are about, wait for it, wait for it, yes, ants! I know you guys have just been pining for more ant stories. So the first ant story piles more worldwide guilt upon America, as if we haven't garnered enough of that in the last 10 years or so. Genetic evidence now spotlights the United States as the source of recent fire ant invasions to the rest of the world. Dr. Kenneth Ross of the University of Georgia in Athens reported in the February 25th issue of the Journal Science that the U.S. has turned into a bridgehead as a forefront to ant invasions across the world. The aggressive stinging fire ant, Selenopsis invicta, aren't native to the United States, but rather to a broad swath of South America. Yet the southern United States, invaded by the fire ants in the 1930s, has sent off at least eight separate waves of fire ant invasions to other countries in recent years. Ross reports that these waves of ants are now colonizing the Caribbean, Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, and China, including Hong Kong and Macau. Ross suggests that, quote, this study is going to cause quite a stir and could have important trade and travel implications, unquote. Frankly, it doesn't matter what the political fallout is going to be. The study is a valuable step in dealing with this problem. Scientists need to know how invasions spread in order to be able to prevent them and effectively manage these invasions. To track the invasions, an international research team analyzed ants from 2,144 colonies in a total of 75 places in 11 countries and looked at several kinds of genetic information, including dozens of DNA genetic markers. The study indicated that the fire ants in their native range of South America have about 322 distinct genetic types. Only 11 of those genetic types are found in the United States, including three that are very rare in the native range. Yet the populations from newly invaded territories had combinations of the three rare variants from the U.S. types, and not the others left behind in South America. Additionally, the researchers ran computer models of how gene patterns change in populations as invaders butt off into new territories. The scenarios that fit the data best show that the United States is the source. This analysis raises the possibility that the rigors of invading the U.S. and then moving on toward world domination have winnowed out the weaklings and less invasive ants. Populations now erupting from the United States could be especially adapted as super-invaders. I can't say that I find that as a pleasant thought. These ants are not only hard to kill off entirely, but they have some serious tricks for surviving even environmental catastrophes. In the ants' native ranges, they survive flooding by fleeing their nests with their young and gripping each other to create living rafts of ants that float until the flood subsides. And if they're afloat for longer than they can survive without food, the adults eat the young. This ability to survive starvation allows fire ants to endure days or even weeks as international stowaways and just about any kind of cargo. For shorter distance travel, young fire ant queens fly off to find mates, and they may end up wafting onto trucks or other ground transportation that take the queens on detours. Ross says, another frightening statistic, that they collected 5,000 queens in a parking lot in one afternoon. The last story of the night is about another invading ant species that has proven intractable. I have spoken of crazy ants before and how they are such a serious issue in Oceania where they have taken over entire islands. Well, this story explains why the crazy ants are so darn robust. Anybody who has ever taken basic biology knows that incest is a bad thing for brothers and sisters because, if we just ignore the cultural taboo, there's a very good chance of reinforcing serious recessive genetic traits and endangering the lives of the offspring. This, by the way, is one of the historical problems that the Ptolemies had in Egypt as rulers. Because the pharaohs were gods, they could only marry their brothers and sisters, who were also gods. Anyway, a new report tells us that crazy ants uniquely have the ability to mate with siblings with no genetic problems ensuing. Dr. Morgan Piercy of the Free University of Brussels reports in the recent issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society that this amazing power has probably helped the crazy ant become one of the most widespread invasive ants in all the tropics. The tiny ants with long antennae were nicknamed crazy ants because they dash along erratically instead of following foraging trails. They now occupy so much of the tropics that scientists haven't figured out even where they originated. Unlike the fire ants, longhorn crazy ants don't bite or sting people but they forage far and fast and can track pathogens from trash to table. They are in food, they are in cabinets. Hospitals, in particular, dread them because they have become a major source of infection spread. Piercy says, when you order a pizza, yes, they can be in the pizza. The way that the process works is still a mystery, but Piercy discovered that there are three casts being produced through different means. The worker class is developed through normal sexual reproduction between queens and males. However, the queens are produced clonally and thus are genetically identical to their mothers. Now the new finding is that the male offspring in the ant colony are clones of the father, with no genetic input from the female queen. So the upshot is is that brothers and sisters do not share genetic material. Hence, they can continue to mate without accruing recessives. It boggles the mind because this system has been completely unknown until this point. Piercy has hypothesized that some trait of the queens lets them produce empty eggs with none of the queens' DNA in them at all. So when the sperm reaches them, they become clones of the father. But again, how this occurs has still not exactly been determined. And it's hoped that by better understanding their process of reproduction, we have a better chance of controlling these little pests. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Watch out for those birds with the deformed beaks. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
3: Hey, go. You know, month in, month out, Jim. What a star! Thank you. Next up is main fiction and spy Will McIntosh. Will has, like, I say, come along and could, I was rooting for him for that Hugo Award for Brightagle, that short story. He got that, and some of the things like Will's wrote, it's just, it's just mesmerising. You know, this story as well. It's just. Take this idea, you <laughs> know, bizarre idea, like you say, and it's just an amazing story. He's also coming out on the first of April. He has an, his first book coming out, and it's by Nightshade Books, Soft Apocalypse. Please, you know, what I mean, there's a link on on the site there to Will's book. By all, you know, kind of the rumors I'm listening on the internet and all the kind of reviews and that. This is going to be truly staggering. This novel. One of the writers, or one of the reviewers, for Barnes & Noble, says that if this this book doesn't make, like, Hugo and Nebula Awards, he's going to eat the book. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Putting himself on the line there. It is supposedly fantastic. If you like Will MacIntosh's stories, you know, this book is probably the one for you. It is narrated by Dennis Lane. As you know, Dennis has took over at Film Talk as well, and, you know what I mean, he can do that, and he can do a fantastic narration as well. Just me that hasn't got any talents. So, Starship's over. Here's a very proud present.
0: A Clown Escapes from Circus Town by Will McIntosh. Beaners tied the pillowcase to the end of a fiberglass rod he'd cut from his cot then slid the rod down the neck of his crate collared shirt and into the waistband of his patched, baggy pants, careful not to scrape his ass with the splintered end. The pillowcase held a change of clothes and some clown chow. Glancing around to make sure no one from management had wandered into the tent, he gripped a sharpened butter-knife between his teeth, wrapped his arms around the massive tent-post, and shimmed upward, towards the billowing folds of the tent-roof striped red and white when sunlight filtered through the silky fabric, but only grey and dark grey now. His grunts of exertion drowned the thunderous snores of his brother-clowns. From fifty feet up, the vast grid of tiny rectangles was almost beautiful. The pattern was imperfect, however, because the cots closest to the shithouse were not splashed with the bright red and blue and yellow of sleeping clowns. They were empty— They'd been full of clowns last night, but a hundred or so had disappeared around chow-time, and, if the past was any gauge, they would never be heard from again. Venus sorely wanted to know where they went. That was why he was climbing a tent-pole. Clowns shouldn't just disappear. If Venus had been more introspective, he might have admitted that he also wanted to breathe fresh air to gaze at landscapes unclotted by clowns. He was so sick of their giant eggplant feet, their chorus of rolling snores and whistled exhales, the cotton candy stink of their unwashed armpits and the sex-starved pillow ejaculations. Clutching the post with one white-gloved hand, Beaners pulled the knife from his mouth and stabbed the tent fabric, opening an incision. The material drooped on either side, exposing a crescent of black sky and moonlight. He sighed with relief that the breach detector, as he'd guessed, didn't extend to the tent ceiling. He tossed the fiberglass pole up and out, then gripped the edge of the rent fabric with one hand and swung his balloon-sized foot up through the hole and rolled onto his back, panting. The ride, down the outside of the tent, was harrowing, his rubbery face flapped in the wind as the ground hurtled towards him. He landed hard, then staggered to his feet, weaving like a punch-drunk strongman. When he had regained his wits, he vaulted over the motion detectors and ran for his life. Beaners skidded around the corner of the snake-charmers' shack and paused, panting, pressed up against the wall like a knife-thrower's assistant. All was quiet. He cut through an animal tent to stay out of sight. Lions and tigers, giraffes and elephants lay sleeping in an indiscriminate tangle. From what Venus had heard, all of them were somehow grown from pigs. All ate the same chow and had no interest in eating each other. The whites of his face red with strain, Venus shoved a trampoline out of the acrobatics tent and into the moonlight. He scaled a support pole on the tent, surveyed Circus Town from on high for a moment, then launched himself at the trampoline. He soared up and over the wall in its defences, hit the ground at a bad angle. His open mouth cracked shut, and he rolled backward, down a brambly ravine and over a bank, landing with a splash in a shallow stream. <laughs> ¶¶ A town came into view, mounds of debris piled against its wall, evidently tossed from inside. Even from a distance, Beaners recognized what the piles were. The smell gave it away, if nothing else, and, even from a distance, it was not the least bit beautiful, despite the way the steel helmets and chain-mail glistened in the late afternoon sun. Beaners knew which town was behind this wall. Medieval Village He shifted course planning to skirt around the pile of bodies, and maybe the entire village. But then he noticed a lone figure, sitting up against a tree near the carnage. "'It was not a knight. In fact,' Venus squinted, "'it appeared to be a superhero. "'Judging from the bright green, skin-tight outfit, "'a green arrow. "'Occasionally marks who visited Circus Town "'from Superhero Cove were green arrows.' More were Batmans, but he'd separated a few green arrows from their money. All the marks from Superhero Cove were thick with muscles and acted like they were hot stuff. Venus figured that a lone person was more likely to talk to him, and less likely to kill him, than a group of people, so he decided to approach the green arrow. As he got closer, he saw that the green arrow was eating a lunch spread around him. "'Lovely afternoon, isn't it?' Beaners asked, as he approached under the green arrow's gaze, hoping to strike a cordial note. "'A clown?' the green arrow said, in a gravelly baritone. He had a blond moustache and a goatee. A quiver of arrows and a bow lay on the grass within his reach. His green outfit was identical to the other green arrows Beena had seen, except this one was blood-stained. A white blood-soaked rag was tied around his thigh. Yes, your eyes do not deceive you. What are you doing here? I thought clowns were indentured. I... escaped from Circus Town, Beena said, unable to think of a lie that was better than the truth. Green Arrow threw his head back and laughed. You escaped? I didn't know clowns were bright enough to brush their teeth, let alone escape. "'Here we go,' Venus said, examining a scraped elbow he'd received when he went over the circus town wall. "'Let's get it all out. Clowns are morons. Clowns are made from pigs, just like the other animals at the circus.' "'Aren't they?' Green Arrow asked, frowning. "'Sure.' "'Whatever you say,' Venus said. He pulled a little flap of skin off his elbow, blotted a drop of oozing blood, stared at the blood-stained fingertip of his white glove. "'So, what will you do now that you've escaped?' The Green Arrow retrieved a loaf of dark brown bread, spread butter on it. "'I don't know. Maybe find work?' Green Arrow "'Waved dismissively. "'Who's going to hire a clown? "'What can you do? "'Fall down for a living? "'Deliver cupcakes on a tiny bicycle?' "'I can work!' "'Beaners thought of all the shit houses "'he'd cleaned in his miserable life. "'Green Arrow only shook his head, "'considered Beaners from the shade of the scrub pine, "'his injured leg stretched out, his good one bent.' He took a bite of the bread, his brow knotted in obvious pain. Beaners settled near him, in a strip of shade. "'What happened to your leg?' Beaners asked. He poured some clown chow into his palm. If this guy was going to eat, he might as well join him. Green Arrow looked at Beena's chow-filled palm, frowning. "'What is that? It looks like duck droppings.' Hey, that bread don't look all that tantalizing, either, Beaners shot back. Green Arrow grinned, held up a finger. He pulled a hunk of chocolate from his satchel and held it up. How about this, clown? Does this look tantalizing? He sunk his pearly whites into the chocolate and chewed with gusto. Beaners chewed the clown chow more slowly, studying Green Arrow. The truth was, Beaners didn't know if he should be tantalized or not. Clowns caught eating Mark food were ground up and fed to the seals. Green Arrow glanced up, meeting Beena's gaze. He sighed theatrically. It's a heavy burden to be a hero. He broke off a square of chocolate and tossed it into Beena's lap. Beaners sniffed the chocolate took a tentative bite. His vision went black. The stars were in his mouth, the whole universe. He started to cry. Green Arrow roared with laughter. Don't laugh at me, Venus said. He scrabbled behind the pine with the rest of the chocolate, suckling it the mother's milk he'd never known. You know, you're not very funny green arrow called to him i'm not trying to be funny when i want to be funny i'm hilarious well any time you want to start being funny i'd welcome the change green arrow said beaners studied the rest of the chocolate in his palm looked at it closely deeply astonished that a brown slightly melted lump could hold so much pleasure He'd never known what a magical place the world was. "'Are you really smart enough to work?' Green Arrow asked. "'Why?' Beaners asked. "'I may have a job for you.' Beaners stood, brushed the back of his baggy pants. "'Name it!' "'Go out into this,' he gestured towards the piles of dead knights. "'Mess.' and search for men who aren't quite dead yet. Call me when you find one. Beanus studied Green Arrow's face, trying to tell if it was a joke. It didn't seem to be. It wasn't what Beanus had expected, but Green Arrow appeared to have more chocolate in his sack. He ventured in among the dead, treading carefully so as not to trip, which clowns often did. The smell is "'Terrible!' Venus called, his voice muffled, "'because he was covering his mouth with a white-gloved hand. "'You'll get used to it.' "'He didn't get used to it. "'The bodies were fresh, bloody with mortal battle-wounds, "'their pants stained with piss and shit. "'There were thousands of them, the grass soaked red around them. "'Dozens of bodies had rolled off the pile and were scattered among trees.' Flies buzzed around his head as he searched their faces for signs of life, occasionally tugging a body off a pile to show Green Arrow that he was doing a thorough job. Soon enough he found a man with a horrible belly wound, whose chest was rising and falling, and whose eyes followed Beaners as he walked. Found one Beaners called, waving his arms. Green Arrow eased himself to his feet. Good man. Go on, keep looking. Beaners moved on. Shielding his eyes from the glare of the sun, Beaners watched Green Arrow limp among the carnage with an arrow notched to his bow, his handsome blond face crunched to a sour expression. When he reached the dying man, Green Arrow had a brief conversation with him. Then he shot an arrow into him. Beeners started in surprise, but went on searching when Green Arrow looked up. He waved a hand in front of his face in a futile attempt to shoo the flies that were buzzing all around him. This wasn't exactly where he imagined he'd be when he vaulted the wall of Circus Town. Venus wished Green Arrow was a woman. He'd like to see a woman. Clown! Green Arrow shouted urgently. Come here! Quickly! From the opposite direction, Venus spied the source of Green Arrow's agitation. A dozen knights on horseback, brandishing weapons, thumped down a switchback on a ridge, heading toward them. Beaners hurried to Green Arrow's side. "'Don't say anything. I'll do the talking,' Green Arrow said. A rising rattle and clank of steel lit the air as the knights approached. They stopped a dozen feet away, the horses pacing side to side, pouring the grass and making wet horse sounds. "'What?' How ye doin!' the biggest knight, who had a bushy black beard, said, waving at the bodies. "'We've merely stopped for lunch,' Green Arrow said. He pointed in the direction of his pack, but none of the knights looked. Each of them had a broadsword slung across his back, and many carried spears and nasty-looking flails, spiked balls on the ends of chains. All of them also had guns tucked into thick leather belts. Ye were merely having lunch, the knight said sceptically. Yet your arrows were not merely having lunch, were they? Not a moment ago, one entered the still-beating heart of my brother-in-arms in a most definite, not merely having lunch, fashion. I was putting him out of his misery. Is that what you call it? Out of his misery? The knight barked, drawing his gun. His companions followed suit. Well. Allow me to put you out of your misery. In the blink of an eye, there was a fresh arrow notched to Green Arrow's bow. But there were nine of them, and they had guns. Hold on! Beaners cried. He rifled through the detritus at his feet, chose a massive flail, pulled a gigantic helmet over his head. He could see very little. He cast his long, thin field of vision left and right, getting nothing but foliage, before finally spotting the night. He stepped forward. Come on! he howled, closing the distance, dragging the flail behind him. I'll fight the lot of you! I'm the new sheriff in town! Avast ye varlets! He gripped the flail in both hands, and with great effort got it rolling in the grass, and then, swinging in a wobbly arc that sent him spinning like a top, he shouted, as the world melted in a horizontal smear. He released the flail. It sailed over the heads of the knights. Venus landed hard on his big rump with an oof. The knights pointed and laughed, laughed and pointed. Venus struggled to his feet, took a few dizzy steps, and fell again. Who's first? he said. He regained his feet with exaggerated effort, retrieved a sword from the bloody grass. Come on, you maidens! He tripped over a corpse and fell a third time. The knights laughed harder. Few things become funnier with repetition. Self-inflicted pain is one of the few. When Bean has performed the hammering-a-nail routine, the audience laughed harder with each missed strike that found his thumb. In all likelihood, there was a point at which the comic value of injury finally began to decline, but Beanus had never found it. His yellow teeth, flashing in laughter, the big knight stepped up and swung his sword, whacking Beaners on the side of his helmet. A deafening clang rakes Beaners' eardrums. He struck Beanus on the other side of his head, sending him wheeling. Then, with the flat of his sword, he hit the target, crying out to be hit one of Beaner's enormous feet. Beaner's yelped in pain, hopped around clutching his throbbing foot. The knights roared with laughter. The dark-haired knight booted him in the ass, knocking him to the turf. He stayed down. His job was done. Ye are a long way from circus town, aren't ye, little clown? The knight said, sniffing back tear-induced nasal mucus. I left! "'To seek worthy opponents,' Venus said, setting off another round of laughter. He tossed the helmet. "'Ye are fortunate, then, that the Folding has brought ye face to face with Sir Clark of the Titus Clan.' "'The Folding?' Venus said. "'Aye.' "'What's the Folding?' "'You don't know about the Folding?' Sir Clark asked, frowning. "'No!' Bena's admitted. "'Sir Clark fixed Bena's with an incredulous look. "'How can ye not know about the folding?' "'He waited, as if Bena's could explain how he didn't know something. "'How did ye think things got the way they are, if not the folding?' "'Sir Clark asked, spreading his arms. "'What do you mean? "'How else would things be?' Bena's asked.' a town of knights and damsels another full of fetching whores and wenches and harlots but no portly matrons jesters and fire-eaters in a third with not a superhero among them that never struck thee as odd the knight said venus had never heard such nonsense why wouldn't circus town be populated with circus people and mediaeval village with knights and damsels should Santa's live in Sex Town, and naked ladies make toys in Santa's workshops? It's because of the folding, Sir Clark insisted. Beaners just shook his head, eliciting a huff from the knight. Ten score years ago, things folded. Places were pulled from all over time and dimension, unfolded into one place. This place. "'That's why we no longer have superpowers. "'They don't work in this dimension,' Green Arrow said. "'Superpowers?' Bean said. "'Yes, superpowers. Extraordinary abilities,' Green Arrow said. "'In our home dimension, superheroes have powers. "'Nothing can pierce a Superman's skin. "'A Spider-Man can climb walls without rope.' Beaners watched Green Arrow closely, searching for a telltale smirk. He suspected they were trying to pull one over on the clown. What were things like here before the folding? People were mixed. Towns were mixed. Most of the people were just plain, the knight said. Beaners didn't know what to say, and his foot was throbbing. Sir Clark Sniffed looked off towards the horizon. Well— We'd best be returning to the castle. He motioned to his men. Good night, Green Arrow said, approaching Sir Clark and putting a hand across his shoulder. May I have a word with you first? The two walked a few paces, Green Arrow speaking low and the knight answering in kind. Just minutes after nearly fighting to the death, they now resembled long-time friends. Such is the transformative power of a good laugh. Beaners couldn't hear what they were saying. Sir Clark pointed once, shaking his head. After a moment, Green Arrow bade farewell to the knight, and turned to gather up his meagre belongings. "'Where are you headed?' Beaners asked, trying to sound nonchalant. "'Sextown, probably,' he fixed his blue eyes on Beaners. "'You knew what you were doing back there, didn't you?' "'I told you. I can be funny when I need to be.' "'Indeed.' Green Arrow checked the sun, probably deciding whether he could make Sextown by nightfall. "'So, you're heading to Sextown?' Green Arrow nodded. "'Mind if I join you?' Beaners wanted to go to Sextown. It would be easier for Beaners to travel with a guy carrying a quiver full of arrows. Green Arrow glared. Why would I want a clown with me? In case you hadn't noticed, I'm resourceful. There are plenty of things I can do. Green Arrow puffed his cheeks, allowed the air to slowly seep out between his lips. Can you carry things? Well, that's not what I was referring to. But yeah. Without a word, Green Arrow tossed his satchel at Bena's feet turned on his heel and headed down the road good then you can join me beaners fell into step two paces behind green
1: hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not
5: hating you
0: Do you have a girlfriend back in Circus Town? Is there a Mrs. Beanus? Green Arrow asked. Venus stared at him. A Mrs. Beanus? Yes, he shrugged. What? You ever seen a female clown? Come to think of it, no. Are there no female clowns? No. No female clowns. "'Beanus kicked a stone down the road.
5: "'Really?'
0: Green Arrow said. "'Well, then, what do you do when you're not performing?' "'Very little,' Beanus said. "'I share a tent, shared a tent, with two thousand other clowns. "'When I'm not working or eating, I'm in the tent. "'We get crazy in there, the boredom, the stink.' Once in a while, someone can't take it anymore and runs off. Ends up where they aren't supposed to be. Maybe the Acrobats tent. Or the Penny Arcade. Anywhere but the Clown tent. Sometimes, the Clown who wandered off makes it back before management catches him. And sometimes he gets caught, and they bring him back. In pieces. They string him up in the tent. If you're unlucky enough to be under a piece, the blood drips "'Drip drips on you all night. "'But you're afraid to move, "'because management's already in a bad mood.' "'Green Arrow stared at Venus, open-mouthed. "'But enough about me,' Venus said. "'They walked in silence for a while. "'What were you talking to the night about?' Venus asked. "'Nothing,' Green Arrow muttered. "'You know, I think I deserve the truth.' Venus said, "Deserve? I don't owe an accounting of my private life to a grubby clown." Venus shrugged. "Fine. Don't tell me." Green Arrow looked off into the canopy of trees overhead. Venus whistled a Calliope tune. They walked. "'All right,' Green Arrow said. "'Anything to pass the time.' He plucked a leaf from a branch overhead, chewed it for a moment, then tossed it fluttering to the ground. Eight days ago my wife and I were in Medieval Village, on our way to an archery tournament. We came upon a battle in a glen beside the road. We raced to the fray, eager to help the heroes defeat the villains.' but we couldn't figure out who were the heroes and who the villains. Green Arrow stopped, eased himself onto a big rock to rest. Venus took a seat on a fallen tree nearby. A small group noticed us and broke off from the fight. They taunted us, made unseemly comments about my wife. Then two of them grabbed her and— Green Arrow grimaced— I killed one of them before they shot me and took her away. The knight I just spoke to said she was probably sold, most likely in Sextown if she's fetching, which she is. I'm sorry. Now I see why you're heading for Sextown. I figured you were just feeling randy. Beena's foot was killing him. He pulled off his shoe. The top of his foot was an angry red and already badly swollen. He pressed on it pain lanced through it like a bee-sting. Green Arrow had gone silent. Beaners looked up. He was staring at Beaners' foot. The ivory-white parts of Beaners' face—that is, the parts beside the wide blue stripe around his lips, the red stars on his cheeks, and the swooping red semicircle eyebrows—reddened. Green Arrow wasn't looking at his foot out of concern. But, in sick FASCINATION. Beaners eased his shoe back on. They made slow progress, both of them limping, but eventually came to a wide open road. Green Arrow led them west, toward the setting sun. Have you ever seen big groups of clowns outside Circus Town? No, Green Arrow said. Why do you ask? Clowns are disappearing from Circus Town. "'Big bunches of them, every three, four months.' Green Arrow threw back his head and howled with laughter. "'What? You think it's funny that clowns are vanishing into thin air?' "'How can you be so wily, yet so ignorant?' Beaners put his hands on his hips. "'Well, I haven't been getting out much. "'What am I ignorant about this time?' Green Arrow threw up his hands. People disappear all the time. Beaners stopped walking. The road ahead reeled and bulged, like an image in a funhouse mirror. He dropped to one knee. Whoa! Steady, clown! Green Arrow grasped his arm, steadying him. It's not just clowns, Beaners asked. Of course it's not just clowns. Superheroes disappear. Knights disappear, whores disappear. Where do they go? Green Arrow sighed. That's the age-old question. That knight probably believes they're pulled back to their old dimension by aftershocks of the folding, but I'm not convinced the folding has anything to do with it. Religious folks say that God takes them. Others say it's just how the world works. "'Some people die in front of your eyes. Others simply vanish. "'It's a mystery.' "'Well, I want to know the answer to the mystery,' Beaners said, "'although, in the light of this new revelation, that seemed far less likely.' Green Arrow chuckled, clapped Beaners on the shoulder, knocking him off balance. "'Answer it, and you'll be the most famous clown who ever lived.' He counted his handsome blond head. Of course, you'll also be the only famous clown who ever lived. But, be aware, Green Arrow continued. Many have gone on that quest. Most of them disappeared themselves. They crested a rise. Just beyond, a woman sat by the side of the road, next to a massive vehicle the likes of which Beaners had never seen before. It was very tall, with a pendulous, hose-like appendage like an elephant's trunk. The woman was Asian, but Beenas didn't know that. To him she was slim and almond-eyed, with black hair, and clothed in a shiny yellow full-body protective hazard suit. Hello, Beenas said as they approached. The woman didn't answer. She was sitting glumly, with her chin propped on her fist. "'Are you from sex-town?' Beaners persisted. He said it, as if it were a perfectly normal thing for a clown to strike up a conversation with a mark. It was a trick of sorts. He found that if you acted as if something were perfectly normal, others usually went along. The woman glanced up at him. "'No,' she said, without lifting her chin off her fist. Green Arrow put a hand on Beena's neck and squeezed. "'So, what town are you from?' Beaner's asked, ignoring the hint. "'I'm not from any town. I was born outside,' the woman replied in a clipped, impatient tone that Beaner's was well accustomed to. Oh! "'Green Arrow grabbed Beaner's collar and pulled him down the road. "'Don't bother people, you idiot!' It had never occurred to Beanus that there were people who were born, lived, and died outside the towns. He'd thought the in-between spaces were mostly crossings, to get from one town to another, and where you dumped your trash. Who is she?' Beeners asked. "'She's obviously management of some sort.' Beeners snapped his head to look at Green Arrow. "'I thought only Circus Town had management.' Green Arrow shook his head. "'Every town has management of some sort. Not the sort of management you described, but people in charge.' The walls of Sextown Town appeared, wavering in the distance. "'Can I have some pay for carrying your bags?' Beaners asked. Green Arrow gawked at Beaners, as if he'd been asked for his pants. And can I borrow some?' Green Arrow smirked at Beaners. He pulled a cash card from his pocket, punched in some code, and handed it to Beaners. "'That ought to be enough. I'll meet you right here in one hour.' Green Arrow pointed at the ground between his green boots. "'If I'm not here, wait.' Beaners nodded understanding. Green Arrow hurried off. "'Sextown was dirty.' It was run-down and sleazy, the sort of town where you didn't want to rest your hand on a light-post or brush your pants against a brick wall, lest it come away covered with something sticky. Lights flashed everywhere, sirens wailed, smiling women in short skirts with perfect thighs and raccoon eyes walked nowhere in particular, competing with peep-show barkers for the attention of men with their hands stuffed in their pockets. Men looking to pay for sex try to look casual, but a tightness in their jaws gives them away. Beaners was simply trying to look like the men, but he had no pockets. He had striped socks, a ruffled crepe collar, a purple polka-dot bow-tie, but no pockets. Clowns have no need for pockets. He watched the men carefully, and the women more carefully. Trying to learn the game, catch the patter that would open the gates. It seemed straightforward enough, nothing like the intricate machinations that accompanied clown-clown liaisons. To call Beena's undersexed would be a vast understatement, unless you counted the occasional soul-numbing dalliance with a brother clown. The few times Beena's had dared put a hand of encouragement on a female mark's shoulder as she ready to throw a dart at a balloon, or fire a water-gun into a mechanical clown's rotating mouth, the woman had recoiled like he dropped a snake down the back of her dress. He approached a delicious woman with jet-black hair down to her waist and heels so high her calves were permanently tensed. "'Hi there,' he said. He flashed his cash. "'I'm interested in your services.' The woman burst out laughing, as if Venus had said something profoundly hilarious. Venus had never been so serious. He walked away, feeling dozens of onlooker stares. Her ways of laughter, like a wind at his back. He tried again and again, adjusting his approach after each rebuff, until he settled on— "'Please! I'll give you all the money I have!' Outside a shingled honky-tonk, on a particularly filthy street, Beaners approached a woman with red hair, freckles, and a vaguely piggy face. Like many women with this look, she appeared to be overweight, but was not. Please! I'll give you all the money I have, he said. She squinted at Beaners, raising his hopes that her eyesight was poor. You're a clown, she said. Yes, I'd noticed, but thank you. How much do you have? His heart thudded hard in his narrow chest. Forty. She sighed, looked him over. Okay, then. It'll have to be behind the bar. They're not going to let you into a room. That's fine, Bena said, not quite believing what he was hearing. She said her name was Roxy, and led him down an alley, into a long, narrow space littered with rusted pots and rotting banana peels, and a steel shelf, empty save for a ragged stack of ancient-looking porn. The clatter of cooking drifted through a crack in one of the bar's frosted back windows. "'Go easy on me. I'm sore as hell,' Roxy said, as she hiked her skirt, and half leaned, half sat, on an upended steel drum. She wasn't wearing any underwear.' Beaners scrabbled to unclasp the buckle on his belt. His fingers were tingly, almost numb. He licked his suddenly dry lips. "'We have similar jobs. After a day's clowning, I'm usually sore as hell, too. All the falling, the bonks on the head, the tricycle collisions. I hurt all over by evening.' "'I'm usually sore in just one place. The boy, am I sore,' Roxy said. With a hand that wasn't holding up her skirt, she swept her strawberry hair back out of the way. In the starlight, she was beautiful to Venus. The freckles on her legs were flecks of gold. I wouldn't mind spreading out the soreness to other places. It'd be a change, anyway. Venus finally got his pants down around his ankles. He waddled over to her, shaking badly. Roxy angled herself and guided him inside her. Beaners moaned, began to move very gently. Roxy inhaled sharply. He froze. Is that hurting you? We can stop, he said. No, it's okay, she said. She grasped Beaners' waist and shifted him over a bit. There, that's better. You're fine, sweetie. He continued even more gently now. It was a thousand times better than chocolate. He fought back, tears of joy and gratitude welling in his eyes. I'll bet you're glad that old adage about the size of a man's feet isn't true, he said. Roxy burst out laughing. Her rhythmic contraction squeezed him, tugged him, massaged him into a shattering orgasm. Beaners laughed out the loosest, easiest, most genuine laugh of his life. He laughed as only a clown can laugh, a pinwheel kaleidoscope penny whistle whoop, until the edges of his vision went gray and the alley spun like a funhouse tunnel. He collapsed against her, chuckling, coming, a primordial hitch that bobbed him up and down like a cork on water. Roxy wrapped her arms around Beena's shoulders and chuckled along with him for a moment. Beena's wished there could be a folding. A folding that would fold time into a loop, and keep him there forever. "'That was my first time,' Venus said. "'Really?' "'Hmm. Well, I'm happy to be your first. "'You're—' she reached for the right word. "'Nice! You're a nice guy!' "'Thank you,' Venus said. Her feathered bangs rippled in a light breeze. Beaners wanted to touch them, feel how soft they were. But he didn't want to risk rushing her off. She sighed, wiped her forehead with the back of her hand. "'Do you know about the folding?' he asked. "'The folding? Silly old knight's tale! That's what I thought. My mamma told me how this world really got started. I'll tell you if you want to hear. Do you want to?' "'I do.' Venus said. "'I do want to hear. "'He almost didn't recognize his own voice, "'because it was soft, almost sweet. "'He leaned his head against Roxy's shoulder, "'and she let him. "'Okay, then,' she said. "'She closed her eyes and took a breath. "'Once upon a time, all the towns were mixed. "'The town folk did all sorts of different jobs, "'but in a lot of the towns—' All the jobs were going to Texico. What's Texico? Venus asked. I don't know. Don't interrupt. There was one small town, though, that had a very big heart. The town folk hired a gunslinger to help them save their town. And the gunslinger came up with an ingenious plan, making their town into a place for people to go on vacation. But the town wasn't near a pretty lake or a beach. And no one famous had ever died there. So how could they get people to travel all the way to their small town for a vacation? The gunslinger had the perfect plan. Turn their town into a superhero town. Superheroes were only in books then. They weren't real people. So the town folk dressed as their favourite superheroes, and people started to come to their town for vacation with their children. Their children! They owned children! Don't interrupt. The townsfolk took their roles very seriously, playing their parts even when the vacationers weren't around, until they were living their parts all the time. Now, other nearby towns saw what was happening. So, they hired the gunslinger to help them save their towns, too. And he turned them all into vacation towns. Santa Land, circus town, wild west range, bible village, hobbit town. It spread on and on, first because it was a way for the townfolk to survive, then a way for them to get rich. And finally, it became a way of life. It became a badge of pride for a town to have a theme. And that's how things got to be the way they are. Bena's head hurt, trying to get the gist of the explanation. He thought he understood. Towns used to be mixed, mostly filled with plain people, just as the knight had said. But there was no folding. That was something people had made up, because they'd forgotten what really happened. It was difficult for Beaners to imagine a mixed town. What were they, if they had no themes? How did the people who lived there think about the place where they lived? And what did they do there? It was like a person with no face. Yet this story rang true in a way the knights did not. Beeners was sceptical when explanations involved spells or trolls or folding time. He left the alley three inches taller, looked up and down the street, spotted green arrow, legs spread, fists on hips, casting about impatiently. Beaners stuck two fingers between his lips and whistled. "'Let's go. Move your big ass!' Green Arrow said. He headed towards the gate at a brisk clip. Beaners hustled and fell into step behind him. He imagined that if he had a wife and knew she was at this very moment being banged in a whorehouse, he'd be testy too. What did you find out? Beaners asked, trying to keep up. Diana wasn't very cooperative. One of her prospective clients may never walk again. Green Arrow flashed her. That's my girl sort of grin. So they sold her. Where to? Circus Town. Green Arrow paused to let it sink in. What would Circus Town want with Diana? Venus didn't want to answer. No one wants to hear bad news from a clown. No one works in Circus Town who wasn't born in Circus Town. It's an incestuous place. Well, evidently some people do. He swallowed. People have seen women being taken underground. Green Arrow stopped walking. Underground, where management operates, where no one who isn't management, not even a superhero with a quiver of arrows, could ever reach. What would she be doing there? Green Arrow said. Venus shrugged. Entertaining management was his guess, but he didn't volunteer that. That's where clowns come from, he finally said. That's where everyone comes from. What does that have to do with Diana? Nothing. I was just saying. He hadn't known that superheroes came from underground, too. No one at Circus Town ever told him anything except other clowns, and they didn't know anything. A working girl approached them. She started to say something to Green Arrow. He cut her off with a slashing hand gesture and a curse. She hurried away. In any case, Diana is underground. That I'm sure of, Venus said. Then that's where we're going. You know we can't do that, Venus said. We'd need an army to get in there. Damn it! Green Arrow said, pounding his fist into his palm. Venus barely noticed this. Most of his attention was turned inward, where the wheels were turning. He had an idea, the sort of insane idea people sometimes get, and then quickly discard. Because as soon as they consider it at any length, a dozen flaws quickly become evident. Exposing the idea as an absurd impossibility. But this idea, as staggering and insane as it was, still held together after Benus picked at it for a while, during which time Green Arrow had resumed walking. Wait! I have an idea, Venus said. Green Arrow went on walking. Hey! Venus said, clutching at the end of his jerkin. I have an idea! Green Arrow glanced at Benus, but didn't slow. I'm listening. We go to the King of Medieval Village and convince him to invade Circus Town. Invade it? He stopped, spun on Benus with wide, incredulous eyes. Invade it, Benus said. We tell the King that the clowns are ready to rise up, that we can take out the security measures for the walls and open the gates from the inside. In exchange, he agrees that your wife and any other women underground go free. And so do the clowns. The clowns are ready to rise up, Green Arrow asked. Let me worry about that, Venus said. Green Arrow stared hard at Venus. Can you really do this, clown? Are you serious? Do I look serious? Green Arrow searched Beaner's face. He nodded. <laughs> Beaner's was sure that if he looked down at his chest, he would see his heart thudding underneath the purple suit-jacket he was wearing. He approached the entry turnstiles to Circus Town on wobbly legs. This can't possibly work, he said. This is the only part of the plan that I have confidence in, Green Arrow said. He looked Beaners up and down. You're the spitting image of the Joker. Beaners had seen a few Jokers in Circus Town, and they did resemble clowns. There were not nearly as many Jokers as there were Batmans and Spiderman's. So he and Green Arrow were banking on no one in Circus Town noticing that Beanus was awfully short, and had awfully big feet, for a joker. He touched his forehead and looked at his finger, reassuring himself once again that the white grease-paint covering the red and blue parts of his face was not sweating off. The green hair-dye would take weeks to grow out, but the grease-paint left him one smudge from disaster. "'Oh!' "'By the way, I never asked how your own question, Sextown, went,' Green Arrow said as they moved along in line. Venus said nothing, but his eyes spoke volumes. They were the eyes of a clown who had glimpsed the infinite. "'I'm sure she took a hot shower immediately afterward, "'and scrubbed her skin with lye.' Venus chuckled, but didn't laugh. "'His laugh would give him away.' She said I was the best clown she'd ever had. Green Arrow swiped his cash card at the turnstile, and they cruised into Circus Town, just two superheroes on a jaunt. As planned, they separated at the ferris wheel. Green Arrow doubled back to set up in a sheltered spot near the gates. If all went well, he would open them as soon as security was distracted putting down the insurrection. He'd serve as a sniper once the siege began. "'Beanus' headed to the clown's tent. "'Slinky! It's me!' "'Beanus said, grabbing a friend's shoulders. "'Beanus!' he added, "'when Slinky continued to stare blankly. "'Beanus!' Slinky said. "'Beanus!' "'He rubbed the tufts of green hair "'on the side of Beanus' head. "'Beanus!' "'Another clown named Gonzo said, turning. "'Where the hell have you been?' Outside, Beena said, outside the town. Others gathered round, many of them clowns he'd known all his life. He could hear his words being passed through the tent, muttered from one cluster of clowns to the next. Beaners had been out of the town. Here, help me with this, Beaners said, grabbing one end of a cot. Slinky grabbed the other, and they stacked one cot on top of another, and then a third on top of that. Beaners climbed atop the wobbly dais. He looked into the sea of colourful faces, trying to think of what to say. I've seen things, he finally shouted to the quieting, colourfully dressed crowd. You would not believe the things I've seen. Beaners paused, giving them time to imagine. I've talked to all sorts of people. A buzz went through the crowd. I ate Mark food. The buzz got louder, peppered with exclamations of alarm. I bought sex from a woman! The crowd roared with shock, then howls and cheers and whistles broke out. And I want to do it again! All of it! And I want you all to join me! Some cheered. Others exchanged dubious glances. Sure, we'll all sneak out together! Someone shouted. No! Venus said, pointing at the shouter. We'll storm out together! Ten thousand knights are waiting, hidden in the trees outside the gates, with guns and swords and giant spike balls on the ends of chains. If we have the guts to rise up, to cause a commotion and divert security's attention, then freedom and jobs and sex with women will be ours! Venus pulled two dozen of the king's finest chocolate bars out of his purple suit pants and tossed them into the crowd. Taste it! Take a piece and pass it on! Just taste what we've been missing! It was a perilous thing to allow the downtrodden even a sliver of hope, a ghost of a chance. When your life is misery, you'll risk it, even when the odds are stacked a thousand to one against you. Beaners showed them how to cut the fiberglass support poles from underneath the cots, and how to sharpen them. They burst out of the tent, sporting wide-painted smiles, and set upon two security guys lounging just outside the tent, stabbing them from all sides. If he could have, Beaners may have called the whole thing off after he watched the men die. It was awful and brutal, the way they screamed. Their pain was real. He hadn't realized how real it would be. It was like sex or chocolate. Only bad. The clowns tore through tents and upended pretzel stands, laughing their whooping, hiccupy laughs. Elephants howled, and seals bleated. Lion-tamers and stilt-walkers stepped aside and watched, wide-eyed. Marks ran screaming in all directions. The clowns didn't harm the Marks. They had no quarrel with the Marks. But the few members of management who had happened to be out were torn to pieces. Security arrived. A horizontal line of blue men with guns and shoulder-fired lasers and cluster grenades that sliced off a clown's legs so cleanly that it took a moment for the clown to realize they were off. The clowns kept moving, kept laughing, and began to die in mounting numbers. The plan was to spread out so security couldn't use their heavy weapons without risking injury to marks and to cause as much commotion as possible. They executed this plan well, because clowns are smart. They have to be smart. It's not possible to be funny and stupid. It's possible to be funny and look stupid. People often confuse the two. Come on! Come on! Bean has said, scanning the far end of Main Street, through the chaos. A security man spotted him, raised his gun, and then jerked backward. An arrow jutting from his chest. A hearty, wet whinny rose above the commotion. Dozens of knights cantered into view, led by Sir Clark. The clowns cheered. Beaners felt the strangest, most wonderful feeling glide down his back as he watched those knights race into view. Knights who were, for the moment, their allies. Green Arrow, riding beside Sir Clark, lowered his bow and gave Beaners a salute. The clowns shifted tactics, joining the knights in attacking security, rather than attempting to evade them. Soon the outnumbered security forces lay dead or dying. Knights and clowns fanned out, seeking more, until nothing moved except knights and clowns, jugglers and fat ladies, lions, trapeze artists, and marks. Beaners turned at the sound of an approaching horse. Where would she be kept? Green Arrow asked from astride the braying horse. Beaners led him to the entrance of the underground. The heavy steel door was sealed. Eight knights with a tungsten battering-ram turned it into so much twisted foil. Beaners watched as Sir Clark led a phalanx of knights and Green Arrow inside. As each stepped in, they were whisked silently down an incline. Almost immediately, There were shouts, flashes, and screams. More knights raced into the entrance, guns raised. Beenas waited until there was no more commotion, and many of the knights had returned back up, a few of them dead, carried by comrades, before venturing inside. For some reason, Beaners had always pictured the underground as a nest of narrow concrete tunnels and cramped rooms. But it was nothing of the sort. A huge, opulent expanse met him at the bottom. There were vast moving pictures on polished marble walls, sparkling blue-green streams pouring into gushing fountains, big glass balls tumbling through the air. All was silent. Beaners wandered from one cavernous room to the next, looking for Green Arrow. Occasionally he came upon the mangled corpse of someone from management. He crossed a giant hall filled with glass balls. It had no floor save for a narrow, railed walkway. Below, glass balls disappeared into bright violet lights. On the other side of the hall, Venus encountered six beautiful, astonished-looking women in a big round pool of whirling water. He was too far away to see if they were naked, but close enough to see that they weren't management. A couple were superheroes a Scarlet Witch and a Supergirl, and others looked like they could be from Sextown. "'Have you seen Green Arrow?' he asked. Supergirl pointed towards an archway. Venus tipped his little hat and forged on. Venus found them sitting on a bed of floating marshmallows in a courtyard. Green Arrow was comforting Diana, who was crying. Diana was a Wonder Woman. She had long black hair— and a red, white, and blue costume with hot pants that showed off long legs. Venus got a lump in his throat watching them. He imagined comforting Roxy like that. "'Did they harm you?' Green Arrow asked Diana. She shook her head. "'No, but I was forced to undergo a medical procedure. Otherwise they left us alone.' "'Do you have any idea what they wanted?' Green Arrow asked. Diana shrugged. "'They barely talked to us.' "'It doesn't matter,' Green Arrow said. "'You're safe. That's all that matters. Let's go home.' They headed back, with Beaners leading the way. Diana and Green Arrow lagging and talking, their arms wrapped around each other's waists. A scrum of knights were lounging in a long hallway, smoking. A short, chubby knight pointed at a staircase. "'Take a look down, Yarn! ye are not going to believe it!' A deep humming emanated from below. The stairs led to a room of polished steel. Giant bronze pigs, each a dozen feet high, lined the room like golden idols. The humming vibrated deep in Beaner's belly. He eyed the pigs uneasily. "'What the blazes is this?' Green Arrow said. "'Look at this!' Diana called from behind one of the pigs, down the long row. As Beaner's and Green Arrow joined her, she pointed at its posterior. The pig's tail was rising, its hind-end bulged, something gummy expanded as if the pig was blowing a bubble out its back end. The bubble grew, swirling with colours. The walls of the bubble, stretching and thinning, becoming opaque, until it was apparent that the colours and movement were inside. Without warning, the bubble burst. Three small, naked clowns tumbled out, landing in a heap at Bena's feet. <laughs> One of them cried in a diminutive voice. They were slick with goo, their eyes half-closed and fluttering, straining against the bright light. There was a long, awkward moment when no one spoke. Evidently, Venus said, clowns are born of pigs after all. I'm sorry, Green Arrow said, staring down at the clowns as if his head was bowed in prayer. I don't understand any of this, Beaners moaned. He lurched, dragging his gaze away from the little clowns who were falling over each other, pinwheeling their little arms. He continued down the length of the room to the wide, double doorway at the other end. It led to a long, sloping tunnel. A far-off vibration echoed out of the tunnel, and a breeze wafted out, tickling the tufts of Beena's hair. Beaners turned found Green Arrow and Diana behind him, standing arm in arm. Without a word, Beanus headed into the tunnel. The breeze varied as they descended, rising to a whistle, then falling away to nothing, then rising again after a few moments. "'It must be the machinery that runs this place,' Green Arrow ventured as the breeze rose again. Beanus couldn't imagine what was down there, but he was going to find out. Ahead, the tunnel opened to their left and right. Beaners hurried, rushed to reach the big entryway, just as the breeze was at its peak. A hundred Spider-Men hurtled past, seated in rows of identical plastic seats. They were all sleeping, their heads lolled back or resting on the shoulders of the Spider-Man beside them. They disappeared, streaks of red and blue, out through the end of the cavernous room and into darkness. Venus, Green Arrow, and Diana ventured to a wide yellow line painted on the floor. Beyond it, the ground hummed with energy, waiting to carry more seats along. The wind rose. All three peered to their left expectantly. A sea of scarlet flesh rose out of the darkness. Venus backpedalled, gawking at the monstrous thing that lay unmoving on a platform. He glimpsed Long, sharp teeth inside its open mouth. Neither Venus nor his companions had ever seen a dinosaur, so they had no name for the beast that coasted past them and disappeared back into darkness. The next transport to arrive was empty. It stopped. They looked at each other, perplexed. Has it stopped to pick up lions or clowns? But there's no one here to bring them down, Diana wondered. "'It seems like a good guess,' Green Arrow said. "'But where is it going?' "'There's only one way to find out.' Venus crossed the yellow line, "'stepped onto the platform, and took a seat. "'Diana and Green Arrow followed reluctantly. you found what you came for,' Venus said to Green Arrow. "'He waved at them with the back of his hand. "'You two go home. "'This is my quest, not yours.' Green Arrow shook his head. Some of my best friends are spider men. One of them may have been on that transport. This affects all of us. Beaners didn't argue. It was true, and besides, he didn't want to go into that dark tunnel alone. If we see anyone, we should pretend we're sleeping, he suggested. The platform began to move. Green Arrow pulled an arrow from his quiver clenched it against his bow. It grew dark, with no sound except for the high-pitched whistling of wind. Beaners wondered if the clowns in Circus Town had fled yet. He should have told them to go, to split up and spread out. Two thousand clowns marching around would quickly draw attention, although Beaners wasn't sure whose attention they would draw at this point. If Circus Town's management was dead, was there anyone left who cared where clowns went? Maybe. The Spider-Men, passing under Circus Town, suggested management in each town was not independent. The platform slowed. Beaners laid his head against the back of the seat and mostly closed his eyes. Through slits he watched as they passed through a station that looked just like the one under Circus Town, only the floor was lined with sleeping knights in full armor. Four people, management types, were working around them, one running, a thick machine carrying a pile of knights in a scoop. There were strange black marks on the wall. It grew dark again. They passed through another station. Vampires in black capes were alongside werewolves and green-skinned Frankensteins. They were below Monster World. The stations kept coming, and Beaners kept watching and thinking. "'Clown!' Green Arrow whispered in the darkness between two stations. If we come upon a station with only one or two persons, we're going to leap off and take them captive, and find out what in blazes is going on. It seemed a reasonable plan. They had no idea where they were going. This trail could lead to a furnace. Best to get informed. They hit a stretch that was longer than usual. The next station was unoccupied. The floors were stacked with crates, rather than sleeping people there were some of those funny marks on the sides of the crates the next station was the same and the next as well nothing changed except the size and shape of the crates finally they passed through a station where a lone graying man was bent over an open crate his back to them green arrow leapt off shoulder rolled agilely and landed in a crouch with diana right behind venus leapt off the transport landed on his nose skidded, then flipped onto his back with a thud. By the time he got his wits about him, Diana had the man's arm pinned up near his shoulder-blade, and Green Arrow had an arrow pointed at his chest. "'What the hell is
1: this?'
0: the old man whimpered. "'Who unlocked you?' "'Who unlocked us?' Green Arrow spat. "'We unlocked ourselves!' the man lunged forward. Diana yanked his arm. He winced extravagantly. "'What town is this?' Green Arrow asked. The man looked away. Green Arrow tensed his bow a notch. belt buckle Borough," the man said. Beaners squinted. "'What's its theme?' The man looked at Beaners as if he were mentally challenged. "'Belt-buckles!' "'Ah!' Beaners said, frowning. "'What's the matter?' Green Arrow asked. Belt buckles must come from somewhere. But it doesn't fit. With either story we've heard about how things began. Do shoes come from some other time or dimension? No. Would people take vacations in a town that made belt buckles? No. Well, maybe a town decided to make belt buckles to sell to the vacation towns, Green Arrow suggested. Why not ask our friend? Diana suggested nodding towards their captive what is all this green arrow demanded where is all of this going the man looked at his shoes it appeared that he was not going to tell them that he would rather take an arrow to the chest green arrow jabbed the man in the thigh with his arrow not deep but deep enough to break the skin the man squealed in pain where is it Going out to the world. Out to the world? Aren't we in the world? Diana asked. When the man didn't respond, Green Arrow brandished the arrow. All right. The old man held up his free hand to ward off the arrow. He took a deep breath, exhaled through his nose. Shit, 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 he hissed. This IS A FACTORY. "'Well, obviously,' Beena said, gesturing towards the boxes. "'Tell us where these people are going. Those Spider-Men we saw. All the clowns!' The man shook his head, his expression a mixture of pity and disgust. "'Some of the factories produce belt-buckles. Some circus performers. Some living exhibits for the historic recreation attractions.' Historic recreation is very big in the United States. They can't get enough of it. Clowns sell best in France and the Soviet Confederation. Venus slapped the man's face. His white glove, now more brown after days of wandering and warring, did not result in a crisp slapping sound. It was more of a thump. You're purposely explaining this so we don't understand. Tell us! What are those giant metal pigs under Circus Town? I'm trying, the man said. It's complicated. He collected himself for a moment. The mechanical pigs allow Texicorp, the corporation that owns all of this, to get around the letter of international law. You're technically not human if you're birthed by an animal. Of course, the metal pigs aren't animals. It has to do with how the law was originally written. And everyone looks the other way and accepts the loophole because they want their clowns and superheroes and whores. Superheroes come from pigs as well? Diana asked. She looked badly shaken. Yes. Anything bought and sold has to come from pigs. So, when clowns disappear from Circus Town... Beaners struggled to understand. It felt like... Two giant fingers were pinching his temples. They're sold to circuses, out in the world, the man said, nodding as if Beaners was catching on. But he wasn't, really. When you say, out in the world, which way is the world from here? Beaners asked. It's all around, in every direction, once you get past the factories. And... We're all the same as belt buckles out there. Now you're getting it, the man said. To the extent that Beaners understood this new explanation, it sounded truer than either of the previous ones. There were no supernatural events evolved, and it was nasty. Why is all this kept from us? Beaners asked. The man shrugged. It's cheaper. You manage yourselves. Police yourselves, train yourselves. And there's the authenticity factor. A superhero wouldn't be much of an attraction if he didn't believe he was a genuine superhero. Green Arrow looked at Venus, his eyes round. Can he possibly be telling the truth? Of course I'm telling the truth, the man interjected. A seam of blood had welled up where Green Arrow poked him. I don't know, Beaners said. I've heard so many stories about how the world began that I don't know what to believe anymore. In his gut, though, Beenas knew it was the truth. The management woman they had passed on the road to Sextown had said she was from outside. She hadn't meant outside the towns. She'd meant outside. The wind through the tunnel kicked up. Moments later— a transport breezed into view, filled with sleeping clowns. Hundreds of them stacked two and three to a seat. as watched them pass, dumbfounded. "'How can that be?' Green Arrow asked. "'We sacked Circus Town. The clowns are all free.' "'You sacked Circus Town?' the man said. "'You mean a bunch of superheroes stormed the town and t- took control of it?' No. Green Arrow said, "'A bunch of knights and clowns took control of it. "'And the underground.' Now the old man looked dumbfounded. "'That's how you got down here, unlocked.' He shook his head, slowly absorbing everything, muttering under his breath, "'That's why there are so many of them. "'Management got wind of it, went in and cleaned house. "'They'll have to offer deep discounts "'to move so much circus stuff at once.' They cleaned house? You mean they got everyone in Circus Town? That fast? Beaner said, his lips numb. It wouldn't take long. They'd bubble it over, lock everyone down, send in a crew. Lots of overtime pay, though, on such short notice. They'll start Circus Town over. Green Arrow set the arrow with a bloody tip back in his quiver. He sighed, shook his head. What now? "'Diana whispered, fighting back tears. "'Another transport went by, "'piled with sleeping elephants. "'I always knew that any day, "'any moment, you could be gone,' "'Green Arrow said, his voice shaking. "'But I didn't understand what that meant.' Venus finally had his answers, "'although he didn't like them much. "'He watched Green Arrow and Diane commune in silence. "'The old man between them with his head hanging. At least they had each other. For the hundredth time, Beenas thought of Roxy. Was there any way she would have him? Not as a customer, but as a companion. Beenas didn't even care if there was sex involved. Well, not much, anyway. He just wished he could have more conversations with her. Green Arrow had said that if Beenas answered the age-old question, of where people went when they disappeared, he'd be the most famous clown in history. Would that impress Roxy? Maybe. In any case, Beaners realized, he knew what came next. Take this guy's clothes, Beaners said to Green Arrow, gesturing at the man. Then find clothes for Diana and get outside. Who'll know your superheroes? The old man grunted amusement. What's so funny? Green Arrow asked. Who'll know your superheroes? Only every scanner you walk through. Your best chance to survive is to give yourself up to management. It was Beena's turn to laugh. Oh, sure. Maybe they'll give us jobs. Us and the belt buckles. No one laughed. If the circumstances were different, Beaners was sure that crack would have gotten laughs. I say we go into the preaching business. Let's go back and tell everyone. Let's shout it from the rooftops. Who'll believe us? What proof do we have? Green Arrow asked. Venus considered. He pointed to a box of belt buckles. We'll take one of those, with the funny markings on it, and— Venus pointed at the old man. We'll take him. Green Arrow and Diana looked at each other. Diana nodded. You're making a mistake. There's no telling how management will react if you do this, the man said. I guess we'll find out, Venus said.
3: There you go. Like you say, copyright is Will's. Got some more stories by Will McIntosh, but do pop over to Nightshade Books and check out his new novel, Soft Apocalypse. Headed for big things, that guy. Next we have a little promo by Revolution SF.
5: Never listen to the roundtable? Here's what you're missing. Is there nothing red wine can't do? <laughs> <It> <laughs> drive you home. It lowers your heart disease rate.
1: It makes me a better dancer.
5: (laughs) Makes me much more charming. Yep.
1: I become invisible.
5: (laughs) I was more thinking that the barmaid
2: became far more attractive, too, but, you know. (laughs) She's
5: still only an 8. I become a 10, so. (laughs) So she's not worthy of you anymore. She's not. I become a superconductor. (laughs) So there you go. Uh, Apparently, we should let scientists drink more often at the office because... Uh, as
1: a related story, the, the hat on,
4: hate on? The glider's
1: on. going to be doused in
5: a nice Merlot tomorrow. The Roundtable, brought to you by Revolution SF. Tough love for sci-fi. Available from RevolutionSF.com and iTunes.
3: be a link on to revolution sf do pop over there that is show 182 put to bed don't forget a few things we are selling tickets for the the making of volume 3 if you want to pop along for there there'll be some new little workshops and lectures coming soon as well i'm trying to organize so do listen out for that but until next week just like to say good day from me (coughs)
5: our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... Sofa. Evacuation Procedure initiated. Shovel set for us Airlock will be
1: opened in 3, two, 1